0: Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, and with me, of course, is Jeremy Goldhorn, the last crony of Joe
1: Kong, still moving freely about Beijing. Say hello, Jeremy. <laughs> hello, Kaiser. And I have to say, once again, just like last week, Beijing arranged a beautiful day for us to record the podcast. Well, this after this has six entire, days of smog, oh.
0: right? But this is because of the the uh, the, the party congress. No, it's ah. to
2: counteract Ambassador Locke. Uh, oh, right, right. <laughs>
0: or, or one of the two. Yeah. Damn. Uh, banana peels. <laughs> also with me is um, David Moser, who I think Grand Mason of the Ancient Accepted Scottish Rite Lodge over here in San Litor. <laughs> um, also academic director of the CET program in Beijing. Welcome, Brother Mason Moser. Thank you. Um, Yes. Yes. (laughs) It it may be that you're listening to our podcast today on China File, the excellent website from the Good Books at the Asia Society. Susie Jakes and Jonathan Landreth uh, are running a veritable one-stop shop for contemporary China watchers where the writings of many luminaries from all sorts of different branches of, 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 of China studies, all the disciplines and academia and and uh, uh, and journalism they can all be found in one place. Uh, File is the brainchild of Orville Schell, who is Arthur Ross Director of the Center of U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society in New York. He is former professor and dean at the University of California, Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, Go Bears. And the author of no less than 15 books on China, his latest, which was co-authored with South Korea-based historian John Delury, is one of the most widely acclaimed books on China of recent years. It takes its place alongside works like The Gate of Heavenly Peace by Jonathan Spence and Joseph Levinson's Liang Qichal and the Mind of Modern China as a book that looks at the way that intellectuals and leaders, in this case from the late Qing all the way through Xi Jinping, have responded to the challenges of their day helps us to uh, much better understand the present and maybe even anticipate the future. So today, we are delighted to welcome Orville Schell to Seneca. Orville, great to have you here at long last.
3: Great uh, pleasure to be here with you three.
0: And so um, I guess today what we, we really want to do is, is I, I'm sorry I don't have a, a funny uh, intro for you. Like, <laughs> well, praise that. the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Today um we're gonna talk about intellectual history in China and its modern fate to to make a reference to Levinson that hopefully some people will pick up on um so i, I, I but first i want I wanna get you to talk a little bit about China file and the work that the Asia society's done uh you know obviously the conflict here we we are on China file and I, I contribute to china. I think we all contribute to china file um so to tell us a little bit about how how it's been doing and uh where it's going what could, we can expect to see.
3: Well, it's great that you all all contribute, and that was sort of precisely our uh, our, our hope that we could create a, a site that uh, would be something of a of a of a watering hole for everybody. Mm. And born of the recognition that you know there were a lot of interesting sites on China, but they tended to rise and fall. And they're often labors of love. Jeremy, you will certainly know wherever we speak. I but, uh, do. <laughs> I do. Guilty. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Very hard to maintain. So we thought if we could do one that would be a place where a, a, other sites could sort of uh, rally uh, and create a, a sort of a watering hole, uh, all-purpose place for uh, people who are interested in China, It would, and attach it to some institution that had some hope of survival. Uh, it would be a, a a noble thing to do. And so we've done that, and now uh, really pleased we're just affecting a whole new partnership with foreign policy. Uh, so we'll be uh, teaming up with them, uh, sort of doing much China coverage with them and for them.
0: That's great. That's really great to hear. Uh, so I, I just want to jump right into this. Uh, my own experience in, in, in China studies uh, <clears throat> I came to the the formal study of China in, in, like I said, the fall of 89, and uh, the role of intellectuals in China's politics, as well as the uh, importance of understanding intellectual history and the relationship between state and intellectuals um, was, well, it was stunningly obvious at the time. This was 89, after all. Uh, I thought it was really the key to understanding China. Um, But part of the reason that I fled academia uh, was my sense that intellectual history had um it was sort of a career dead end for me it was falling very much out of, fl- of favor um so what's the state of modern chinese intellectual history in the academy today is there a dearth of of good writing on intellectual history and and and, and if so what, why
3: well i think you know you fled once i fled several times <laughs> uh, and and returned and i think you know one of the tragedies of uh sort of china studies is that in many ways it's been captured by the social sciences and all sorts of sort of behavioral theorists. And uh, I do lament the passing of intellectual history uh, because I think it's both a mirror of what happens and also the intellectuals who form it, maybe they're politicians, maybe they're business people as well, they also tended to have an influence on history. So you can kind of... uh, There was input and output, and I think it's a a tremendously effective way, actually, to draw people into history, because you do it through people who existed as human beings and uh, who had lives as well as thoughts. So that was, anyway, the conceit of our book, Wealth and Power, to try to look at modern Chinese history through a whole series of sort of emblematic doers, thinkers, uh, and uh, uh, a- activists um, to try to make sense out of how did we get to now after 150 years of serial dead ends, cancellations and, uh, you know, seemingly uh, uh, periods of history that seemed to go nowhere. so How did it add up? And that was the question we posed our, to ourselves.
2: Uh, yeah. Another problem maybe is that it seems like the intellectuals, and not just the academia intellectuals, but the writers and the artists have uh, at all times in the 20th century, and especially in the, t- in the late 20th century, been at odds with or struggling for, for uh, political causes against the government or for the government. And I think, that, I think a, a general problem with Chinese studies overall is I think that intellectual history, the arts, literature seems to get subsumed under political science uh, we You know, uh, like film is another example that's always treated as uh, political rather than artistic. It's it's never judged on its own merits. Look at Lu Xun, look at Ba Jian, look at almost any writer. And I think that intellectual history has suffered uh, also, which is which is why it's so nice to see this book that goes into such depth. It's the first book I've seen in a long time, but it actually presents, outlines the intellectual history and the, the history of those thinkers through the 20th century until now in in a coherent form. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's kind of a tragedy of China's uh, upheavals in the 20th century, that everything gets uh, subsumed under political
1: upheaval. But can I ask a question? Uh, The the framing device, the title of the book is Wealth and Power. And if I just saw the title Wealth and Power without knowing anything about it, I wouldn't think that it was a book of intellectual history. Um, What is? uh, Can you explain that?
3: Yeah, it's interesting, Jeremy. Uh, I mean, it was quite a surprise, I think, to us, John Delury and I, to find this sort of mantra, you know, fuchang, uh, sort of recur again and again and again and again. And I think we came to this, I, I mean, listen, I've spent my whole life trying to, f- to, to wallow around in Chinese history, and I had to admit to myself, I couldn't really make sense out of it. Hmm. You know, what... If you look at it in a kind of a teleological sense, you know, what was the motion? What was the goal towards which Chinese history was sort of directing itself? We in the West very often think I think you know not to be too uh, sort of uh uh you know esoteric about it, but in Hegelian terms of history moving towards I think we tend to imagine greater openness, greater democracy. Uh, enlightenment values. And and you remember Francis Fukuyama, Fukuyama, the end of history. Well, we had kind of gotten there. And it turned out, well, history did start up again. And so I think for us to try to sense what was the Chinese, the main current flowing through Chinese history, it was, in fact, we concluded, this desire to see China great again, to become a country of consequence. And wealth and power really Described it, and it was something that uh, almost everybody in some form or other, whether nationalist, communist, dynastic, anarchist, Christian, they all understood that aspect. And I think that was a tremendously important animating impulse that got us to the present.
0: That's right. Um, actually, I, I, was, I was reviewing um, something that I had written back in 2001, in April of 2001, uh, I, I, it was a, a column I'd written for Time magazine at the time. I, I was uh, alternating weeks with Matthew Forney uh, doing a column called Made in China. And uh, April, of course, of 2001 was the month where the EP3 spy plane incident mm-hmm. happened, bringing back immediately memories of what had happened spring two years pre- prior to that, which was, which was of course, uh, the Belgrade incident. And uh, one of the the things that that I kept running into, people were were, were always asking me about, um, was you know how how can these people, uh, these Chinese friends of mine who appear to be so liberal, who are cosmopolitans who embrace universal values, Mm. how can they? uh, Where does this strain of virulent nationalism well up from? And uh, in 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 explaining that in this in this particular column. I went directly to Fuqiang, to to uh, to the concept of wealth and power, and explained that liberalism and nationalism in China, China, uh, especially uh, in the late 19th century and the early 20th, they developed in lockstep, that there were not uh, thinkers. I mean, whoever you looked at, whether it was Chen Duxiao or or Liang Qichao or anyone, uh, their embrace of what we call liberalism was as a means toward decidedly nationalist ends of of, of and and that that any time you would see uh, the the means and the end come to conflict, the end would naturally prevail. It's it's what what, what they're after, uh, and so that's why when I when I picked up your book and I saw that it was in that I mean that it had sort of found that same idea, it resonated so much with me. For now, the, when we look at the last hundred and seventy years or so of Chinese history, um, you know, from the the Opium War, um, you know, I think one of the, the uh, the the recurrent things that uh, that we we talk about is sort of contested visions of modernity so uh, one of the questions i have for you it, it 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 seems to me that like uh western historiography and not just western but i'm also thinking about you know chinese historiography uh, sort of the meta narrative of history it is teleological or it does it does uh it's it we don't seem to be able to escape that uh it you know, I want I want to talk about all, all the different uh, writers that that, or the different thinkers that you 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 uh, include in this. Uh, but I also want to say, you, you know, you're somebody who has raised this idea of you know the problematic nature of our teleological histor- historiography. How we you know we we tend to not be able to escape this idea that. We... But I can't help thinking that when I come to the later chapters of your book, you kind of fall into it. I mean, you, you know, the, the choice of Liu Xiaobo, for example, I mean, I can see that every, everyone else has already had their impact. I mean, it's, you cannot argue uh, that everyone all the way up to, you know, Zhu Yunji, uh has had in their thinking a clear impact on the way that China has, 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 has been shaped. But when, when you get to Liu Xiaobo, it's almost more wishful or How would you answer that criticism? Yeah,
3: that's that's an interesting observation. I mean, I think I I look at it this way, that up until roughly now, I would say the primary sort of impulse, but there were exceptions, that animating most people was this real desire that you have properly, I think, identified, fired by nationalism, to see the nation become great again. Mm -hmm. Now... That's wealth and power. Now, I think you could also say that we're arriving at a point where China has acquired a good quotient of wealth and power. So once it's acquired those goals then, in a certain sense, history may start up again in some slightly different way. That then may may be, and this is why we included Liu Xiaobo, Uh, then it may be that, that we head off in a more Hegelian direction. So you may say, I'm having my cake and eat it too, but this is to say the last 70 years, I think, were headed in the direction of strong nation, which required wealth, power, and nationalism. Once that is accomplished, it's not quite yet, and there's still a great deal of insecurity and a great deal of victim culture aloft in the land. Then maybe, uh, these other impulses for a more open, just, fair, democratic society. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe history will kind of get back on the old Hegelian teleology again. <laughs> I don't know, but we certainly want to open that door at the end.
0: Okay, uh, that's, that's, that's a fair and reasoned answer. Um.
2: Can I, can I just mention something that has been a thread through other podcasts we've done, in which 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 Orville's book sheds light on, which is the the relationship of the Chinese intellectuals toward democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think what's one of the interesting frameworks of this book that I got was of 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 democracy as being something that was you know in the air and something that that is being talked about even now in the halls of Zhongnanhai and stuff like that. But what's interesting is that they tend to treat democracy not as an abstract ideal or as, as a principle, but as a tool yeah. of mm-hmm. governance to be used to achieve wealth and power. Right, the, and it's it such a powerful, yeah, it was, that was such an eye-opening awareness for me because we had talked in this podcast even about, you know, the Chinese uh, attitude towards democracy. Uh, and you want, you want to talk about yeah, that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that this, the striking thing as you go through all this history and you look at the various schools of thought that enter. It's like trying on suits of clothes. Yeah, right. They put them on. They look in the mirror. Mm, this is not, not quite right. Take them off. Try something else. It's very utilitarian. Mm-hmm. And I think there is an aspect of that uh, that's striking. And you know, for a while, it seemed like democracy was the tool which would bring wealth and power you know, the, cult, the industrial revolution. the West had it, right? The West had it, so okay. So how did they get it? Well, maybe it was democracy. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a, a burst of, of enthusiasm for that. Then Leninism came along. Gee, this looks pretty good. Strong state, one party, ideology, discipline. Then that kind of crashed and burned. And then you have Deng Xiaoping, and he says, well, how about a little capitalism? Let's <laughs> Let's have a go at that. And now I think we're heading off into some new territory with Xi Jinping. It isn't quite clear what the model is, but it's still very utilitarian.
2: Could I just add one other example? Is I can't imagine a culture that, that for for many thousands of years, its cornerstone was Confucianism, mm. which then under Mao was totally repudiated and dead and buried, and then they brought it back again. That's Tr- just trying. astounding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or they're
0: trying, right? They're now, trying. Yeah. To, to the chagrin of some. The- <laughs>
2: Poor Confucius.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's been exhumed many times, uh, (laughs) reburied. Um, I guess I want to go back and and look at the structure of the book here and ask you uh, maybe what were the criteria for inclusion of the particular intellectuals that you focused on. Everyone from, you know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, f- some of these these people are are, are no-brainers, I mean, to, to have included. Could we just uh, run through the chapters, perhaps? Sure, sure. I mean, why don't we do that? Um, it, it starts... It starts,
1: the first one is uh, Wei Yuan. Oh, well, no. Wei Yuan. Oh, right? no, yeah. Yeah. And should we yeah, talk sure. a little bit well, about... A
0: quick bio on Wei Yuan, then.
3: Well, here was a guy at the very sort of, you know, even before the Opium War was sensing some rot in the escutcheon of China, and slowly sensing after the opening war, something wasn't right. These guys who had arrived from the West had some strength, and yet he didn't speak any foreign language. He'd never been abroad. So these guys are sort of trying to, the blind man feeling the elephant, they're trying to figure out, I mean, okay, who are these people? What's out there? And where do they get their energy? So he was a very kind of interesting sort of point of departure when the West first arrives and China has to kind of begin to come to terms with it with very limited ability to, to know about the West.
0: His, um, uh, as you said, though, when you first started to introduce him, uh, he, he was aware of this even before encountering the West. So that that's what I think this, the important thing is. The, we we do want to sort of shake ourselves out of that. Uh, I mean, it might be you know a cursory read of your book might think that this is still all about response, uh, which is a, a decidedly unpopular uh, way to approach modern Chinese history. Now, I mean, now everyone will tell you that that this was sort of you know the last straw, rather than than the the, you know, the response to the West wasn't the only defining. I mean, it wasn't what defines modern history, right? So. Uh, Including a, a character like this, who uh, is is part of uh, a whole late Qing movement in 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 Neo Confucian thought that that has decidedly modern strains in it already. You know, a very an empiricist kind of a, a, of an approach. I thought that was an important reason to include him.
3: Yeah, there is this notion, isn't there, in in China of a dynasty in decline and seeking a zhongxing, you know, Mm -hmm. a rejuvenation, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because we now have Xi Jinping talking about a different kind of rejuvenation, a fuxing. fuxing. Uh, So, I mean, I think Wei Yan was sort of part of that recognition that dynastic cycles, you could kind of protract them a little. If you could identify the sort of indigenous problems in the dynasty and 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 reform it, and then of course the West came and sort of made it doubly it was double jeopardy.
0: And so after William, we have like uh, Feng Feng, is that correct? Yes. yes. Yeah, Feng Gui Fung, oh, who who another kind of no brainer, and and as. As, as well as... Uh, it's an
1: interesting term, <laughs> word. To refer no, 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 he belongs no. In, this, in this... He definitely in the, belongs this. in this intellectual
0: history. Right. Yeah. I guess I'm, what I'm, I'm interested in, um, rather than going through, is, is like who, who doesn't get included.
3: Well, we had to throw a bunch of people out of the helicopter, because right. it was just not going to take off. And, and some uh, people get
0: sort of you know crammed, like in the Chen uh chapter, you end up... Uh, you know, there's there's quite a few pages given over to Lucian.
3: Yeah, because we we did a whole chapter on Lucian, and I mean, I adore Lucian, yeah, and I wrote doesn't? the chapter. But you know, he doesn't quite fit into the wealth and power narrative because he's much more interested in sort of internal things. Right, he's more like Kafka. You know, he's interested in, in the inside of his own brain and China's brain. So but he's he, also more like Boyang in the '80s, mm-hmm. which yeah. is
2: he's more of a social critic. He's more like a doctor yeah, diagnosing the, cholo, the, the illness. Man. Interestingly, yeah, exactly. he
0: was right. a doctor. Yeah, he was a doctor. Uh, that's but, true. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yes, he was. He, he and 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 I think uh, he was interested in sort of the, almost the psychological side of things, right. not the exterior, uh, you know, uh, recrudescence of power, majesty, you know, all, all of these things which China has, is uh, still fixated on.
0: Absolutely. Um, and then Hu also sort of gets slightly short shrift. Yeah. He
3: was another one, and I'll tell you why he got short shrift. I, I, I love Hu partially because he's easy to read. Yeah. Uh, he's a joy to read in Chinese. Uh, but he really was part of what I Think was a bit of a uh, an epiphenomenon, namely these very westernized people who do deeply believe in openness, democracy, and liberalism, but in that sense, he wasn't really, I think, in the main flow of 20th century Chinese history. Mm. Hmm. A powerful person. You. I would have to agree with you. There. Who's in reserve for the future, perhaps, but. He wasn't answering the questions. I think that most people were suffering from.
0: Where, where, if you look, if you sort of trace the narrative, Arco Chundusio, he's very much of the moment. He's he he kind of expresses the. He's for
3: science and democracy, but he's also a big time nationalist. Mm
0: -hmm. Right, big time nationalist, and (laughs) and it's really his embrace of Marxism-Leninism that matters the most. I love to turn over that moment in my in my head. You know, what was it that was so appealing? about Marxism, Leninism, to the Chinese of that moment. These were, you know, let's let's remember, in, in the May 4th period, um, with the Russian Revolution still only two years old, uh, but w- what was it that the Bolsheviks had? It was, uh, I mean, I, I, I still kind of tend to frame things in a kind of Levinsonian way, you know, that it has to satisfy meum and verum, it has to be, you know, mine and true. And what Leninism seems to me to do is uh, it, it it is a... Uh, it is at once Western, and therefore you know, it has that sort of trend, and it casts itself in a sort of scientific pseudoscience, pseudo-science right, so science, and- right. but it has that, that, at least that, that patina of science to it that they could grab onto, and yet it is a critique of, of Western society and, and it, is, it, 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 it al- aligns itself, I mean specifically Leninism, against imperialism, which at that moment was enemy number one it it explains the uh, china's poverty it explains china's weakness it explains the the predatory nature of capitalism uh, i think it, it 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 had an almost irresistible appeal it must have had an irresistible appeal at that moment
3: mm-hmm. yeah i think it does it it makes china explicable in terms of its suffering and its its Uh, the way in which it was preyed upon through Lenin's theories on imperialism, but it also offered up one other incomparable thing, which every Chinese in the 20th century, with the exception of people like Hu Shi, really uh, appreciated. That was the model of a strong state, Mm. a strong leadership, an ideology, a disciplined party structure Sun Yat-sen bought into it. John shek bought into it. Mao, Chengdu-shu, they all bought into it, except for Lu Xun. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so this was the remedy for you know the Sun Yat-sen's famous dictum that China was ipan Sha, mm-hmm. dish of, or sheet of loose sand, and he very graphically said that what that dish of sand needed was some binding agent. And right. Leninism was the binding agent.
0: And so this in the Sun Yafi Manifesto of 23 with the reorganized KMT, they explicitly embrace a Leninist party structure. And what's interesting is that uh, I think a lot of people don't understand that the Guomindang itself yeah. was, and was all the way up through the time of martial law, still explicitly Leninist in its organizational structure.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, a, that's quite a revelation to a lot of people. And also, uh, it's interesting to remember we write about this a bit that john kai shek had more than a minor flirtation with fascism let's talk about that a little bit i mean well, because that if...
0: that is another um that certainly has uh, it would have a lot of appeal if you look at mussolini uh i mean you have once glorious nation you have that kind of reactive nationalism having been you know uh, uh, trodden upon uh you know th- these a- appeals to sort of the militarization of society Zhang is a uh you know huangpu uh Academy graduate, uh, t- t- tell us a little bit about Zhang and his and his fascist flirtations.
3: Well, I think he he too uh, looked at the sort of piteous state that China was in. You know, this is uh, he launched the Northern Expedition and more or less unified it, making deals and conquering a few warlords. But still, it was pretty pretty ragtag bunch of disaggregated pieces. And I think he felt that the sort of symbols that fascism offered of a strong kind of exciting leader with lots of medals and mining certain sort of traditional, you know, Hitler did this very nicely, the whole thing about sort of Teutonic myth, and Mussolini did too, that he was quite, found that quite appealing as a way to bind up China into a new hole with a big, strong leader. And, you know, all these guys wore these absurd uniforms just bedecked with medals and Prussian hats with feathers sticking out of them. This was all an effort to, to make a leader significant enough, I think, to sort of draw the loyalty of the Chinese people back into something that was um, uh, sort of reconstituted as a nation. Don't you think there's some little echo of dynastic...
2: Yearning here also. I mean, even Yan Shukai, you know, dressed up like an emperor, and, and, and the, mm. the fascism the, the, on the surface level has the accoutrements of, of the dynasty. You know, it has the epic scope, mm-hmm. the large, you know, palaces and, and everything, and the strong leader, and, and the, the people are a, a pan of loose sand. I mean, it's, it, it resonates almost subconsciously, I would think.
0: Well, one would, I mean, I think that the analogy would have been to a Bonaparte. Yeah, my 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 sense would. Have been. Yes, I mean
3: he certainly made France grand, and you, and we remember that when John John shek came to power, he had this great vision of, of building a new capital and did, in Nanjing, and uh, you know grand boulevards copied from Napoleon in France and right. Washington, and he had the whole damn thing laid out yeah. in a kind of an incredibly grand way. So there was this. Uh, sense, And I think we still see it in China today that sort of this uh, love of grandeur Mm. because it sort of papers over the insecurity of a disaggregated nation and a kind of a battered people. So you build a Tiananmen Square, square, Mm. you you build a new Nanjing, uh, you build a Sun Yat-sen mausoleum, uh, and it makes it look like things are a lot more together than actually they may be. You know, you asked Kaiser about people who, who how did we choose? Well, so we had to get rid of Lu Xun. We would have done Li Hong Zhang, you know, but it just wasn't room. We tried our hardest to figure out a way to do, uh, you know, Hu Jintao. But he was like eating styrofoam. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that
0: whole decade gets just passed over very quickly. It was yeah.
3: very hard to, so we kind of had to th- throw him out. Right. And, well, who's
1: Hu uh, Jintao? I don't. You remember, don't remember that guy? <laughs> Nobody remembers. Well, that. this <laughs> is a
3: problem. Uh, you know, even Jiang Zemin. Uh, you know, actually, looking back on Jiang Zemin now, I have to say, whereas one, at one point he did appear to be, I think, somewhat clownish. Now I look back on him with a certain fondness oh, absolutely he was quite open mm. he was he was trying to be a mensch he was trying to sort of yeah. run with the big guys you have that whole dialogue between him and, and Clinton it was uh, fabulous uh, I, I was the Dala Dala. sitting right there during it uh, in the front row watching Jiang Zemin with you know with Baba the master <laughs> of the master of sort of repartee and trying to sort of imitate him. And it was quite touching. He did quite well. And looking back on it, I'd have to say, there isn't a snowball's chance in hell (laughs) that Hu Jintao or Xi Jinping would risk such a, 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 a wager.
2: Yeah. she might you, you well she has got this reputation for, sure. for trying to be you know a man of the people and he's eating at the local restaurant and everything okay. but Jiang Zemin was getting
1: out his guitar and singing yeah, Elvis he a bit of a sense of humor about himself which <laughs> he, yeah, did. he yeah, does, yeah, does not yeah. seem to he, have he, he <laughs>
3: yeah. really did and uh-huh. he wanted to be a, a, like a normal person mm. a normal leader yeah he didn't want to just be this sort of mysterious wizard behind the veil
0: so I have a a, 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 a little bit of a beef um of late, I, I'm, I'm a, somebody who believes very much that that the interaction between the intellectual and the state is sort of the the driving piston of of, of, of Chinese politics. That it's you know that relationship between the pen and the sword. Uh, and uh, if if we assume that to be, the, I mean, that may sound very elitist to a lot of people there, but I, I really do believe it to be the case. And I also believe that. Um, well, as as a result, it's very important to understand intellectuals in in China today. My beef is this: that I I have a a, a sense that people who are writing the first draft of intellectual history are uh, ignoring entirely uh, a whole very very important. I mean, I hate to use the word but a sort of silent majority of intellectuals today. They're instead conflating the idea of of dissident and the idea of intellectual that that. You you know you can't be uh, an intellectual if you aren't in active opposition, um, and I, I I I admit that that I was a little as you know flipped the pages of the book and realized that you know say Wang Hui was not included or uh, that, that there weren't more establishment intellectuals uh, there wasn't anybody sort of in there who argues the intellectual position uh, for. Let's take the grand compromise. Let's, uh, you know, because that 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 is that is a sensible position for somebody who who seeks wealth and power. The, the stand in there would be yeah. Uh but do you feel that that, that that's, it's kind of unfair? Do you would you agree first of all that that there's this conflation of activist, dissident, and intellectual in the minds of a lot of, say, journalists today?
3: Yeah, I think it's true, and I think you know the the truth is the the, the intellectuals who become sort of spokesman or, or make the case for uh, the status quo and for the powers that be. They're finally not very interesting because they don't exist really in a state of tension with anything, unless they're in a debate. So th- they too are hard to write by or write about. Right. So I think you didn't
0: want to put Eric X Lee in there. <laughs> no, actually I
3: find it, I find him pretty interesting I do too. And making right. the making as good a case as you can make, which isn't a bad case at all. I mean I have to say I I, I, I am a big hearted Democrat with a small D, but I look what, what's going on in the Ukraine and Egypt and Libya and I gotta say, a lot of these springtimes hmm. you know, they they skip summer and fall and hit right into winter. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but Kaz, I don't think you can really. Uh, I mean, that's you, you're, you're you're talking about something you feel generally. But in, in terms of this book, uh, Oval uh, and John's book, I mean, post-revolutionary China, we have Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, Zhu Rongji.
0: Right, but these are our, our political <laughs> leaders. These aren't um, the, these aren't the deep thinkers. Right.
3: Well, so two other people that finally had to be uh, reduced to a few pages. Uh, one was um, Wei Jingchong, mm-hmm. uh, obviously not an intellectual. Uh, just, arguably, I mean, yeah. no, but uh, he was—he fits your billing of a of a anti-state intel- intellectual for sure. Uh, and,
2: and someone who was bringing up democracy again, not as a tool. For wealth and power. That's right. But in principle. Right? Exactly. Sure. And Fang Lijiu, the Ligier, same yeah. thing. Yeah. He
3: was another one who believed in democracy, not because he thought it would make China wealthy and powerful, but just because he was a kind of an idealist. And he actually believed that human beings deserved to be free. Right. And that's certainly not in the tradition of utilitarianism.
0: I got to know him at Arizona <laughs> because uh, his building was actually his atmospheric sciences building was right next to the Franklin building where the East Asia studied. Department was housed, so I, I saw him a lot. and We chatted. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know that he was China's Sakharov, but uh, I no. Don't...
3: But he was as close as he got to somebody who was trying to think about, you know, you know. He'd go to Europe, and he'd look at go to Florence, and he would look around, and you know, he 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 was sort of as broad-minded as a scientist kind of got in China mm-hmm. in China
0: at the time. Uh, what one thing that I, I wish I I could have seen in there. Would have been uh, one of the many thinkers from the 1980s uh, who who were looking looking very deeply at neo-authoritarianism, which turns out to I mean so technocratic neo-authoritarianism was sort of that was the buzzword of the, of the of the day in the 80s. So you had like Wang Ruoshui, Wang, Wang uh people mm-hmm. like that who might have been candidates for inclusion. Did we look at? Those types
3: that's of. an interesting thought uh you know those I knew both of those guys, and I, I knew something about them, of course, but um I mean it would have been interesting to include yeah. one of them, I think uh they both had rather bitter ends very very, yeah, very uh, hard despite hard their authoritarianism, and that was a school of thought that in the late eighties had a Brief flourishing, and then its 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 ma- major spokesman Zhao Ziyang ended up getting cashiered right. himself and That's right. put put it put put away and uh, house arrest. I might add on none other than Fu Chang Hutong. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, no, so so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, there's a poignant <laughs> moment in there. Um, it's it's because people forget that it was actually Zhao who delivers uh, the, the excommunication, essentially, uh, to uh, Fan Li. That's right. Which I thought was a, a that that was that was a very poignant moment in the, mm, the, yeah. the later paragraphs or one of the, the, the later chapters. Um, can I, can so, I ask, But yeah. before we get off of intellectuals, can I just ask Orville a question? About
2: sure, intellectuals? of course. Uh, you know, I, I never I don't know as many, and never knew as many as you did. But when I was at Beida in the eighties, I would meet not famous ones but intellectuals, mm-hmm. and it always struck me that there was a lack of of the kind of Chomsky type of intellectual that had a feeling a resonance for the, mm. for the common people and for social justice, whenever you would talk to them, they would have a kind of contempt for the people, especially when you would talk about democracy. They would point out there and say, look, you, you expect those people out there to be able to understand democracy? They're, they're you know, sojour, tidy, you know, they're peasants and the... And does does that strike a bell with you? I mean, well, you know, that's
3: very Chinese, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's the traditional role of an intellectual was to be, you know, ya, yeah, yeah. yeah, not not su- sort of elite. They're very elitist. That's, they were very elitist. Deeply. I mean, and this is why Mao Zedong hated them. You know, <laughs> well, he true. he got snubbed by them when he was working in the Beida that's Library, true. and he never never got over it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, he thought intellectuals were just completely useless.
0: So, um, just partially selfishly, uh, next week I'm going to be interviewing at the Bookworm Literary Festival, Jonathan Fenby, uh, who's just written a book, oh, great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A, a book called Will China Dominate the 21st Century? Uh, you've just completed this book. Uh, you know, you, you've, you've, you, you've obviously, it sets you, know, it's, it's set you in, in, in motion as, say, um, you, you sort of, now see the, the broad outlines of, of history across the last hundred and seventy odd years. Will China dominate the twenty first <laughs> century?
3: You know, Kaiser, I've got to tell you, um, I think ever since nineteen eighty nine, when I think I don't know if if you guys were were, were there, I was here. Yeah. I was, was on no, me. I mean, you know, I don't think there's one of us who thought after that they'd ever get the genie back in the bottle, right? Mm-hmm. But they did, and. I think many of us during the ensuing 2025 20, years would think over and over again this shouldn't work but somehow it did. I mean work whatever that means. It went on and it did pretty damn well mm-hmm. in actuality. Uh so when you ask should chi- will China dominate the world? I think you have to ask yourself well First of all, we're not very good at predictions, so probably better not to (laughs) wager an answer. But second of all, whatever is going on, a lot of it is very counterintuitive.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
3: So it makes it very hard to judge. I, I continue to think that there's so many contradictions and fracture lines and problems inherent in this whole proposition that it shouldn't work. And that makes me think, well, maybe they're coming up against an inflection point, but then i'd thought that numerous times before
0: who hasn't yeah so, we, we, we.
3: so what do we do with that i 'm not sure I can answer
0: muddling through doesn't mean dominating the, the century of course, but yeah. uh, and then you know we have to ask the question, does China want to dominate and, and-
1: But also, uh, I mean, I'd like to go back to Liu Xiaobo and raise a different question from Kaiser because, I I mean, to me it actually makes a lot of sense to end the book with Liu Xiaobo because – I mean, I almost feel that, I mean, it's not quite there yet, but China is rich and powerful now. It's not the most, it's not the richest and the most powerful and it could all collapse tomorrow for a bunch of reasons we've discussed many times <laughs> on the show. Um, but uh, compared to, you know, any time since 1842, it's it's rich and powerful. Um, and my daily sort of both existential and, and, and just uh, philosophical uh, quarrel and query with China is, okay, you're rich and powerful now, so what are you going to do with that? And to me, Liu Xiaobo is is a, a, a person who, whether you uh, like his writings or not, but his treatment here and the treatment of his wife suggests to me that there's not really an answer to that. You know, what 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 else aside from being rich and powerful? Is that it? Is that all Chinese culture is going to offer the globe? That, was that anyway way part of your thinking in putting Liu, Liu in into the end of the book? And yeah. W- what is his question for China and China's future?
3: So I think the question that he poses for China and for indeed all of us uh, is sort of what's the real goal? I mean, and for him, the real goal is not simply to be wealthy and powerful and to, to look good. Uh, his, he's much more of a humanist. And I think also lurking in the back of his critique is something that the leaders now sort of see but are quite surprised by, namely that getting wealthy and getting powerful doesn't, as everybody sort of thought for low these 170 years, create ipso facto respect. And that is Mm. what is really wanted, is Mm. respect. That's why there's such an incredible fixation on soft power And I think Liu Xiaobo is sort of trying to feel his way towards an answer of respect. And basically what he is saying, if I read him correctly, is if you want to be respected, you first of all have to earn the respect of your own people. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where China is still incomplete. Mm -hmm. And so in a certain sense, his answer is, you know, justice does create a kind of a respect of your own people. And until that can be brought home, the most yearned for aspect of the whole 20th century sort of struggle, which is to be respected by the world, is still elusive. And it is very galling, I think, for these leaders to find it can't be had by control alone.
0: Hmm. So, I mean, it's not something that's directly addressed in your book, but... um. China's fixation with humiliation at the hands of, of imperial powers, beginning with the Opium War, and, you know, certainly it's shaped the PRC's attitudes and its policies toward the end, uh, you know, toward its non-Han ethnic groups that are within the borders that it essentially inherited from the Qing Empire. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about how these attitudes are playing out now? Um, that that is. Uh, China's ideas about um, historical oppression at the hands of imperialist aggressors and its own thinking with, with its, uh, I mean, its its own obsession on uh, separatism and, and that sort of thing. We're witnessing some real horrors, um, self-immolations in Tibet, of course, and then the terrorist attacks in Kunming that just happened a few days ago. Uh, how do these thing- these two things relate or do they?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of ironic, isn't it, that a country which wove a fabric of anti-imperialist critique and a victimization by superior powers, stronger powers, should be elaborating a similar syndrome over some of its minorities, whether it's in Xinjiang or Tibet, most notably. Um, well, and I mean,
0: it, it just, but, but of course, it makes sense also that it regards these as the sovereign inviolable borders and it, it that's why it's particularly prickly when it comes to these these old the old enemy meddling again in our internal affairs by its well, definition but yeah the irony is certainly there
3: that's very powerful too i mean anything where there's meddling cre- cre- just gets china's up. but i do think that it it, it 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 there is a terrible tendency that every country has to be mindful of that you know you want to if you've been oppressed, it's very easy to prove that you have turned the tide by putting the shoe on the other foot. And I think uh, it, it in some very cryptic way that very few Chinese would care to acknowledge, it may have a, give a certain satisfaction to have a few benighted minorities to whom you are bringing civilization, just as the missionaries once thought they were bringing civilization to the heathens of China. There's a lot of complicated things going on here that it, uh, you know,
0: All right, absolutely. Uh, let's look at some of the things that have happened in just a few days since uh, the horrible attacks. Uh, the whole controversy over the T word, over the uh, alleged failure of the U.S. media to to call it terror without the, the sneer quotes, without the scare quotes, uh, in 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 the immediate aftermath. Now, of course. Uh, there are plenty of reasons that, that Western journalists will give they'll say well look a well it, our editorial policy is is just avoid that word when you can that's Reuters um, secondly they'll have their own sort of definitions and uh, some of them will, will argue that, that there was so much opacity that you just you, you didn't have full information you didn't have the capability to make a judgment and you weren't going to based on their past record simply believe uh, the the Chinese authorities the moment they started using the T word it's going to repeat it but at the same time you know let's all we, we understand that it's a very freighted decision it just the decision not to make it itself is is very value-laden right and and uh, one might expect that you should well be able to muster the empathy to realize that your decision not to use that word is going to hurt the feelings of the Chinese people as it were uh, where do you guys all stand on on that on that particular issue.
1: Look, I grew up in a country where anyone fighting against apartheid was a terrorist, so I, I, I've never liked the word. I, I think it's, uh, well, I I've think always we, found it a, a word that is abused more than it's uh, it's used usefully. I couldn't agree with <coughs> you more. I mean, I hate the word, um, and, uh, you know, the uh, global and, war on terror. Uh, yeah. um, I think that the Chinese government putting out editorials, like today there was one in Xinhua, uh, crowing about the fact that now the quote marks were gone from the Western reports. Uh, whereas maybe it would be better to obsess about other things connected with this attack. So mm-hmm. for me, I don't... I mean, I, I sympathize with the idea that why should you know Look, yellow-skinned is... lives be worth less than white-skinned lives, mm-hmm. essentially, and it's not terrorism when it happens to Chinese people just because the government is one way or another. I do sympathize with that. But on the other hand, I, I just think that, you know, making such a huge fuss about that is... I mean, who Look, cares? the anger of, of this didn't come from... The state media. The anger over it came,
0: you know, from people, ordinary people on Weibo, right? That's where it, let's let be, let's be clear I, I, on not that. I'm not sure it about that. Up, I think no, the it state media reported
1: it first, Kaiser. No, no, uh, no, no, no I, I'm not sure no. about that. It,
0: immediately afterward, you started seeing these comparisons going around, and these were being made by by ordinary netizens. It's, I, I it's, it's
2: terror is one of those words that draws the line. When you use it, then it suddenly draws a certain line. You you remember the problems Obama got into. Supposedly, because he didn't use the word terror in in conjunction with the Benghazi attack, and then the right, you know, said you know he didn't use. It. So they were wanting him to draw the line, and that's, I think that that's 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 the problem with the word is that it draws a line artificially, even in the Benghazi right, case. Right, but I mean, it, that's in the problem.
0: in common usage, it's it's become something that. That, you know, when you apply the word, you are uh, you're you're saying that this you're you're making the the putting
2: the white and black hats on the two sides. Right. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. But it it crosses a threshold into a certain level, a new level of heinousness. And it's it's kind of an important I mean, it's it's very problematic. I completely agree. But the the, that you're choosing to, to decide, oh, now we're going to address the problematic nature of it now. That is problematic, too.
1: I didn't think it's just, no, but I think we should ask Oval what he thinks yeah. about this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was hoping an
3: equal participant. he there. would explain. <laughs>
1: Stick you in the hot seat, no? <laughs>
3: you know, one thing that does, uh, I can't help notice about this brouhaha, is how important it is to have the United States sympathize, you know, mm. with China. Absolutely. And, and I think here, the United States was a bit slow at the pitch. It could have said something early on. We're not sure what happened, but it's a horrendous loss of life. And we're, you know, tremendously regretful and sympathetic and share, you know, pain that Chinese must be feeling. And then later on we can figure out who did it, uh, you know, whether it's terrorism or not. But I think, you know, there still is this abiding, even though China puffs itself up and pretends like it doesn't care, it still really matters oh, deeply mm-hmm. what the West, you know, the West, the not so much Japan because they're sort of over the edge anyway, you know, thinks about China. And this kind of, I think, gets back to this notion of, do you even respect us enough to sympathize with us when we get killed?
1: That's true. Though. I think that one of the top headlines in the top box on, 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 on Xinhua's uh, website today was something along the lines of international... Community removes quote marks from terrorism. Basically, (laughs) well, Well, I'm 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 glad they did. I'm I'm, personally,
3: but you can be sorry without saying this is a pack of Muslim terrorists. I mean, uh, anyway, it wasn't. But you know, I understand Washington had a huge snow and ice storm. It was the weekend, and when they finally did get around to saying something, I think they had to do it by phone. Because no reporters could get to the we're press also conference
0: between ambassadors right now, and it's, uh, it's, it's yeah uh, right. another issue for me with 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 Kunming. Uh, uh, there were a lot of people, uh, and we could have expected this, of course, uh, that in analysis uh, in in Anglophone media afterward, you saw a kind of perfunctory acknowledgement of the monstrosity of the of, of the event, mm-hmm. but then now let's look at the real reason. That's fine, right? Let's look at the real reason i it, it, the perfunctory nature of of it which i thought sometimes was was hollow bothered me but what what bothered me worse was when we did get to analysis of root causes the narrative was entirely around chinese repression as though everything that has happened in xinjiang uh has occurred in isolation from the the radicalization of much of the rest of the islamic world and there's like this almost deliberate effort to 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 say pretend you know i mean it's it's there in the subtext when you deny the East Turk, uh, the Turkstan islamic movement's existence it's there in the subtext when when you say you know uh, you know well, uh, there we're outside forces no no I and mean, when you when you sneer at the chinese outside forces explanation and and it's 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 bizarre i looked at so many of these analyses uh, alongside that it's necessary a couple of paragraphs talking about about the problems of and they are very real problems of minority policies. Why wasn't there a paragraph that, that talked about the rise of Islamic nationalism everywhere else? Uh, where, I mean, I'm going to invoke Levinson again. Uh, you know, it, an idea uh, is a choice among many ideas. And when suddenly you have as your, your possible responses uh, a lot of new ideas, you know, uh, Wahhabism or Al-Qaeda or or Islamic movement of Uzbekistan or all these other alternatives and the responses that they've chosen, that changes things, that that, that changes things, and it should be part of the conversation, no?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen a little bit of this in Syria, you know, when suddenly the Al-Qaeda starts showing up on the side of the freedom fighters, Mm -hmm. and they make things, everything quite, everything's, suddenly gets quite confused, and I think in China here we have a bit of the same thing. On the one hand, we actually may have some rather wild and crazy Islamic fundamentalists acting out, but at the same time, you do have an unpleasant situation of sort of Han domination in Xinjiang. It's very hard to sort these two things out.
2: Right. You notice also the right-wing media even fell in in the same line, because normally if there was a case like this in 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 a country that's not that's more neutral from our interests. There'll be this yelling on the right about Islamofascism, and look here, here it's cropping up again. But because the right is not well disposed to the PRC government, then it fits into this narrative of repression. So they weren't squawking about it; they, they, right. they were muted about it as well.
0: Not that I would, you know, ordinarily take comfort in in, <laughs> in, in, in the Fox right. News. Yeah. But I, I do
1: think this is also another case of, of you know, the Chinese government's, you know, extreme uh, lack of communication skills and the planning around the communication of this. I mean, for example, this, this event, it happened uh, within 24 hours, um, Xinjiang separatists were blamed. Then there were police, apparently police photographs of a T-shirt that had a Uyghur script on right. it that just said Uyghur with a, a black T-shirt. That's all it said. Uh, that were, That's all so that was, was visible. D- d- well, on the front of it, that was all that was well, visible. It was
2: in Arabic, actually. It, Arabic the, script, but Arabic apparently script, it was yeah.
1: Uyghur, and it said Uyghur. Um, Uyghur yeah. And uh, that was given as the evidence that it was Islamic separatists. And okay. then within, uh, what is today, Tuesday, uh, the, the, the actual headlines were uh, Xinjiang, uh, what was a terrorist uh, case solved. That was an actual... Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, headline on Xinhua, which then uh, created another quote mark situation, which I think you observed somewhere on the internet. I saw where some Western media outlets said uh, put the solved in quotation marks, quoting Xinhua. But uh, it's, I mean, it's it seems I think to the the outside viewer, if you can solve a case like this in two days, it's solved. Now we know everything, you know, it's done. It it doesn't lend credibility. To your cause, and it, it um, makes it makes the outside observer think, well, there's something a bit fishy here.
0: Sure, I understand, uh, but you should also understand that so much of what was done was done entirely for a domestic audience. Solved was sort of to try to allay further fear, panic, uh, and you know. Fine, you know, but, but, but then I mean, the but international
1: real... audience has no reason to take it seriously if it's if it's propaganda. I okay. mean, that's what that's what their problem is. Yeah, I uh, think... that's why people they are not more sympathetic with you, you. You're and right I'm there. not debating. Your moral position, I'm just saying they have a structural problem in not understanding international communications.
0: Once again, um, um, the, the very ambivalent nature of, of censorship came into, into play. In 2009, uh, there was a lot of debate over uh, – um, there were some people who said it was right uh, for China to, uh, to try to play down ethnic tensions and try to prevent pogroms against uh, Uyghurs – uh, by preventing people from sending text messages, or they deemed would inspire uh, vendettas by Han Chinese against their Uyghur neighbors, uh, they did the same thing this time. In the for the first 12 hours, at least after uh, they prevented any mention of the word Uyghur, of mm. Xinjiang, no no geographic attribution. They deleted. They had plenty of pictures of of the uh, victims. But no v- photos or video of the perpetrators, uh, nothing that would, would signal that that this was work done by by Uyghurs. And my understanding of it was that that was deliberately undertaken to try to prevent, you know, kind of retributive acts. Uh, what do you what do you think? Do you think that there was no no opinions?
2: <laughs> okay. I don't know. Let's 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 just leave that one hanging
0: there, and I'll, and uh, and 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 move on to recommendations. Orville, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, do you have something to recommend that you could share with us?
3: Uh, well, there are two two books that one has just come out, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, Emily Parker's book, uh, "Now We Know Who Our Comrades Are," which is about the internet in Cuba, Russia, and China, mm-hmm. and sort of netizen culture in each place. Um, I found that a, 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 a nice book. And then uh, I had occasion to read an ava- advanced copy of Evan Osnos's new book.
0: Oh, you ah. lucky son of a bitch. Yeah, which is not <laughs> out yet. <is> <laughs> yeah, it's very oh, nice. Wow. Okay.
3: I, 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 I liked it. I think it's going to, you know, we all have this d- dilemma of uh, people constantly asking us for the, a book list. Right. You know, what should I read when I go to China? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I always draw just a colossal blank. Uh, I never can remember what to recommend. But Wealth think, and power is great. Yeah, <laughs> that would be, shall I say, a little self-serving. <laughs> I, I, I've got my. my list but I bring. think I think uh, Evans' book is a kind of a nice general evocation of things that uh, one could recommend for you know. Okay, this is a, this is like eating a some kind of a meal in a pouch you know it's you get everything all all of the major food groups in it <laughs> <laughs> he, he
0: he discovered i mean he found i think though the great organizing concept in ambition what better word could you've organized a book about late 20th early 21st yeah. century china yeah. around that's, that's yeah that's, that's wonderful yeah.
3: but of course ambition is such a it, it is so present but of course then one wants to know where did it come from mm. You know, because it wasn't so long ago. It comes from
0: the world, search for wealth and power. <laughs>
3: well, it, I think it does in some ways, but, you know, it wasn't so long ago that China was an utter basket case, to- completely bereft of any mm. ambition, at least collective ambition, that manifested itself in any effective way. Jeremy, so this is quite the, a stunning turnaround.
0: Back then, you and me were drinking a lot of beer on Saturday.
3: <laughs> yeah. That's well, right. I'm going back a little before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to go that far back,
1: though. No, no. <laughs> no. I mean, in the mid-90s, things were pretty
0: still, still pretty yeah. that's yeah. Great. Um, I, I can't wait to read that. I'm, and that's probably yeah. the one that I'm looking forward to most. David, what do you have for us?
2: I'd like to re- recommend a book by an in- the entire oeuvre of, of a scholar named Anne-Marie Brady who is Australian and she's got a great book called Marketing Dictatorship Propaganda and Thought Work in Contemporary China. <laughs> and uh, do you know her or
3: of her? I do know her yeah. her work. I, I yeah. haven't read this book. Yeah. Is it out yet? It's out. It's been yeah. out for a while, yeah. 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 I what's read it.
2: what's uh, as someone who has done some work in state media uh, CCTV, she's a very careful scholar and it's very geeky. It's not a it's not a, f- a popular book and it's not a popularizing book. But it's very thorough about the the mechanism of uh, state media, mm-hmm. broadcast media, and, and and publication media, and if you want to really understand the nuts and bolts of how the and the hierarchy of the of how the the, the censorship apparatus works, uh, this is the book. It's very very good. It's very solid. And all of her she's she's very prolific. She has many articles uh, about the, about media and, and control, and they're all. They're not fun reads. They're not like, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're scholarship, it, but they're very valuable, I think, and people need to spend more, spend more attention to them, hmm. I think.
0: Jeremy?
1: Well, I always tell our guests, much to your chagrin, that they can uh, recommend a tweet if they like. Uh, And I will (laughs) recommend a tweet, but also another thing. Uh, It's
3: like a full night's work.
1: (laughs) Sort of this offering. Yeah, right. (laughs) um, uh, Richard McGregor, the former FT bureau chief uh, in Beijing, uh, I think watching Putin's uh, press conference, which is going on around now, Saying uh, about the Have you been U.S. you
0: on Twitter this whole time?
1: No, I just uh, <laughs> happened to look at it right now. Um, <laughs> they, the U- Americans, Putin said they sit there across the pond, and sometimes I think they feel like they're in a lab and performing experiments on rats. Anyway, I think that's quite a, a good way of looking at uh, uh, Chinese I could and Russian uh, view. Occur,
3: occur, concur with the metaphor of. R- Rats in Russia.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but my Sarah's recommendation is a website called East by Southeast, which is a, a oh blog. My God, you just took my recommendation? No, oh, so I that's did. Welcome okay. <laughs> well, it's a, sorry. it's a blog that I've been aware of for some time, but r- made myself reacquainted with recently because it's, I, I think most of the writers are based in Kunming and they cover Brian Yunnan Isles, and yeah. Southeast Asia. And today or yesterday, they published your Kaiser's Facebook. Post about some of the issues we've been discussing sure. about the use of the word terrorist, etc., uh, and uh, lots of other stuff about Kunming and Yunnan and Southeast Asia and the interaction. Well, their
3: time has certainly come,
1: indeed. Yeah, yeah. Brian Eiler, who uh,
0: works at IES, was a colleague of Jeremiah Jenny. Uh, he's he's the guy in charge of that. Uh, he's a terrific guy, by the way. Um, so you've taken my recommendation. Oh, uh, I, I've got another one, Hattie, though, um, that, that's re- related to our our main topic today. Uh, that's a book called *The Chinese Enlightenment* by Vera Schwartz. Oh,
3: yeah, yeah it's a great yeah, so book. i remember that. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Okay,
3: so uh, it's really good intellectual history. Yeah,
0: it's uh, first first rate intellectual history. It's really it's about the May Fourth New Culture Movement, uh, and really goes in in considerable depth. The companion volume, I would say, is Zhou Zizong's The May Fourth Movement. So these two books, if you read them next to each other, uh, you'll know all that you need to know about the, I think, the, the most pivotal, important piece of, of China's intellectual history, the touchstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything that's happened since is sort of uh, in reference to that. You can't Understand things like, you know, He Shang, River Elegy, or, you know, everything that happened in 89 without an understanding of, of the May 4th movement and the New Culture Movement. True. So, Vera Schwartz um, and uh, the Chinese Enlightenment. Well, thanks. Thanks again, guys. David, thanks. Orville, great to have you. I mean, next time Pleasure you're back in town, you're welcome. Thank me. you, and Orville. And Jeremy, great man. Um, and uh, we've got, like I said, t- a, a terrific bunch of shows lined up. Uh, next week, I think we have Mark O'Neill uh, coming out to talk about. Uh, the, the Chinese Labor Corps in the First War, uh, and that's that's going to be fascinating. First World War. First the First War, mm-hmm. yeah, the First World War. Of we that's just call it the right. First War, the Great War. <laughs> <I call laughs> the it Great first War, war. <laughs> the War to End All Wars. And uh, I'm going to be talking to Pankaj Mishra. Uh, Jeremy is going to be talking to Adam Minter. I'm going to be talking to Jonathan Fenby. All of this stuff is going to to go up online on Seneca, so stay tuned, and we'll see you next week. Take care i hey.